you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 28. Ephesians 4, 25 to 28. You can find it in your pew Bible, um, the black book and the chair rack in front of you there, page 978. It's also on the inside cover of the bulletin. We're, uh, we're going to spend this week in Ephesians. And then starting next week, we'll be in the book of Matthew, <clears throat> answering the question, who is Jesus for the, uh, for the period of Advent from the book of Matthew? And um, uh, confession, uh, you might have noticed a few weeks ago, we were announcing upcoming adult Sunday school classes, and I realized that Elder Josh Drake's upcoming class on the Gospel of Mark is also going to be called, uh, Who is Jesus? So you know, you'll get a double dose of that. I might have stolen the title from Josh. I really don't know. But um, <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll look at Ephesians 4, 25 to 28. We'll finish chapter 4 sometime in January. And we might move a little faster through chapters 5 and 6, but we'll, we'll look at those at some point as well. Without further ado, Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 28. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. <clears throat> Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Since the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We need your word. We need your guidance. We need your truth. And so would you give us now ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are ready to respond to all that you have to say to us, your people. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. I wonder if we should talk more about the seven deadly sins. Now, I'm a Protestant, Presbyterian, I'm not a Catholic, and I think our church rightly teaches that all sin is cosmic treason against the Creator, that some sins are more heinous, and that the blood of Jesus is big enough to cover all sin. I believe that. I also believe Sin is deadly to the body and to the soul, to the body of Christ, and to the self, the individual. So in all that, is it possible that we've forgotten how deadly sin can be? Now, why do I mention that? Because what have we been talking about? Unity and purity within the church. How all of the Christians' new clothes that we're supposed to put on, that they promote unity. And how those other things that we're supposed to put off, how those tear us apart. Tearing down purity, trampling on unity. And I have never met someone yet who wants the church to be more dysfunctional, more ununified. We want, don't we, a healthy, growing, unified body of Christ to call our church home. And praise the Lord, we have one, not a perfect one, but a healthy one, a growing one, a hospital for sinners where the gospel plus safety plus time can still heal us, rehab us, deploy us into Christ's service. Have a church that loves the gospel, that loves one another, but it's always under attack, is it not? Both from without and from within. Jesus reminded us, Matthew 15, 19, 
Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, all those things. Deadly sins can arise, yes, from without, but also from within. And so if we want a healthy church, if we want the benefit of being loved by one another, and I think we do, then we should beware all these threats, both from without and from within. We should be eager once again to put on the Christian's new clothes. So assuming that we want a healthy church, not a dysfunctional one, four reasons this morning that we should want to put on truth, righteous anger, and hardworking generosity. The first one is this, because God's Son died to make obedience possible. Because God's Son died to make obedience possible. You see this earlier in Ephesians. It's important to understand, see the context of all these commands that we've read in Ephesians 4. Why does God expect us to be able to do any of these things that He commands us to do? Well, earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It reminds us earlier, we're all dead in sins and transgressions. We were until God made us alive together in Christ. By grace we're saved. Grace, God's unmerited, unearned favor through faith. Again, not because we earned it, but by believing that someone else did what was necessary to save us. And all of this is not our own doing. It's God's. It's not a result of works. Not mine. Not yours anyway. So that no one, no Mere human can boast about these things, brag, give themselves credit. We didn't do anything to earn our salvation. We are saved by grace alone. Of course, that grace that saves is never alone. It's accompanied by good works, good works that he prepared beforehand for us, as it says in verse 10. We're created, you might even say recreated in Christ Jesus for good works from that new life flow all of these exhortations because we have a new heart. We, we can obey as he calls us to. In another letter, Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A couple verses earlier, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Out of his atoning death, I have new life. And out of that new life, I can live for him according to his commands, according to his desires. I can do the difficult work of obedience, or you might say the difficult work of life together in the church. Oh yes, we... We know this. We might need the reminder. We might not. The Christian life can't be done exclusively or primarily on Zoom. The church doesn't have a drive through window. At least it certainly shouldn't. John Stott reminded us last week, holiness is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. <laughs> And so if we want a healthy church, we'll come be part of that church, getting messy, getting 
dirty with other people's messes, not only our own, as we try to put off dirty clothes and put on clean clothes, as we try to put on unity and purity, as we try to put off those vices, those evils that destroy unity and purity. And again, we do it because Christ died to make it possible. What have I been saying? The challenge in Ephesians is that we must not ignore the demands of the gospel and we must not decrease the power of the gospel. We are diving into these demands more and more. They're getting harder. They're getting more detailed. The verses, the passages we're covering are getting shorter. But some of the things it's calling us to do are harder so that we might be a more purified church, a more unified church. And as they get harder and more demanding, brothers and sisters, we will be tempted to dismiss me, to dismiss God's word. I don't want to deal with that. And I'm asking you not to do that. I'm asking you instead to let it push you closer to the cross of Christ. The place where mercy and justice meet, love and justice meet. Where we find the power of forgiveness for the liars, the lazy, and those who love anger. The power to forgive. The power to transform. Because purity and unity in the church are worth it. It's what we want. Nobody wants the other. We might complain about the other. We might complain about the things that tear the church apart. And we might think they're more everyone else's fault than our own. And at times that might be true. But we all agree it's worth it. So put these things on. Put on the Christian's new clothes. Because Christ died for you to make obedience possible. Put them on, secondly, because God's people belong to each other. God's people belong to each other. We see that in verse 25. You may remember these verses here and forward. They have the same structure. Put off, put on. Here's why. Sometimes that order, the exact wording changes, but you see those three pieces. You see it in verse 25 of chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood or putting off falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's what we put on. And why do we do it? For we are members, one of another. We did cover it two weeks ago, but I wanted to review, dig a bit deeper, because it says we've put away falsehood. And so as Christians or little Christs or Christ followers, Christ imitators, we can't abide falsehood or literally the lie. And this would include things like deceit, hypocrisy, uh, cunning, tricks, all of that. But we might trick ourselves into thinking, just because I haven't told any really big lies lately, God God is satisfied with me when when in truth he, He wants us to put off falsehood more and more, even more. He wants us to put on truth even more. You see, every now and then our consciences need a regular deep clean. Deep clean, even the the kind that burns a little, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith, excuse me, the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, as I said before, one of the finest works on Christian ethics that's out there. It spends 420 words, I won't read all of them, telling us the duties required and the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Here's a brief sample, the duties required, promoting truth, in the good name of our neighbor, defending our neighbor's innocence, being ready to receive a good report about our neighbor, being unwilling 
unless we have to, to receive an evil report. It says discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanders. You could call that liars and gossips. We don't want to entertain them and encourage them. And what about sins forbidden? Well, obviously, outright lying, bearing false witness in court. But what about undue silence in a just cause? Not speaking up when we can clear someone's name who's been unjustly accused. That word, tail-bearing, again, that means gossiping. It even goes so far as to forbid misconstruing intentions, words, and actions. What you might call spin. The kind that omits certain details in your favor. All these things are either required or forbidden for Christians. This is how deeply we have to love the truth. And I'd encourage you, if you want to do an even deeper dive on these things, read John Murray's Principles of Conduct. Not an easy read, but a very rewarding read. Again, the bottom line is we have to love the truth. Because we know how dangerous lies are, even the subtle ones. How much lies and mistrust can tear a church apart, can tear families apart, brothers and sisters in Christ apart. Because the goal is to build up the body of Christ. We seek unity through purity. We seek unity by using our gifts, diverse gifts, to build up the body of Christ by using the same fruit of the Spirit, putting on the same Christian clothes like, like truth. Truth in love, which builds up, Ephesians 4.16 says. So that we can ask ourselves, how can I speak the truth in love during the next hard conversation I need to have? Because again, we are members one of another. We belong to each other. So lying to my brother in Christ is really like lying to myself. Why would I want to do that? Somebody else says lying to a brother in Christ is like stabbing one of your own vital organs. Who wants to do that? Some call lying a prodigious wickedness, a gross hindrance to proper functioning, something that would cause trouble or friction or disunity or sadness in the church. Who wants that? If you want a healthy church, you can't do that. You can't lie to one another. You can't stab your own organs, cause friction, disunity, sadness. Instead, we're called again to put on the truth, put on the clothes of truth in love. We're encouraged to do it, one, because Christ died to make it possible, and two, because we belong to each other. We belong to each other. And we also put on Christian clothes, again, like truth, righteous anger, and generosity. We put those things on, thirdly, because Satan wants our anger to destroy our body. Satan wants our anger to destroy our body. Yes, I covered it last week. Some of you are glaring at me. Why do you have to talk about anger again? Last week's hard enough feel your pain, trust me. But some feedback made me realize repetition, more clarity here might, might help us. Again, I said these clothes, they're tricky. They're, they don't fit right. The clothes of Christian anger, they fit awkwardly. Because anger is not inherently sinful. What does it say here? Be angry and do not sin. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If the Bible calls it sin, we should hate it. We should... Hate our sin first and foremost, right? We should hate our sin without hating ourselves. And we should hate sin, but not persons, not, not other persons, not other people either. That's 
guardrail number one, right? That all, might all be covered under the first guardrail. Do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Guardrail two, the end of verse 26, do not let the sun go down in your anger. That's figurative language to describe a literal reality, a literal danger. Never go to bed angry. Always apologize before bedtime. These are good rules of thumb, whether you're married, whether you're not. Why? Why can't it wait till tomorrow? Why is it so bad? Because anger is a fire. That's the metaphor that's used even to describe God's anger at times. Anger is ferocious. It's fiery. It's hard to control. It is commanded if it's rightly directed. But again, anger is so volatile that even good, holy anger is dangerous if you stoke that fire too long. John Stott says it's seldom safe to let the embers smolder. You don't want to let it keep burning. Your anger can start out holy and good. It's offended because God is offended. It's offended because this is not right. But if it keeps burning, if you don't deal with it, address it, do something about it, the human heart can do twisted things. We all know this from experience. We, we say things to ourselves. We trick ourselves. This is just a partial list of the ways we might trick ourselves, right? We say things like, if I was right to be angry back then, well, I'm right to be angry now. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that anger's metastasized just a little. If I was right to be angry then, what I want to do right now in my righteous anger must be the right thing. Friends, have you ever had one of those moments in a minute later, an hour later, a day later, it, you realized maybe what I wanted to do at that moment wasn't the best idea. Sometimes we've acted on it and we've known that was a horrible idea. Sometimes we have the good sense. Maybe it's our own cowardice that saves us in a twisted sort of way. And we don't do what we said we would do. And we're so glad afterwards. In short, even if you are right to be angry about something, you still need to calm down before sundown. Simmer down before sundown, if you prefer. You still need to ask, God, how can I show love to my brother or sister, the one I'm angry at, maybe justifiably, right now? How can I show love to them right now? Even if things aren't resolved yet, even if they're probably not going to be resolved with the next step, what is the next step of love that I can take? Be it overlooking an offense. It's a glory to overlook an offense, Proverbs says. Be it forgiveness. Be it confession on our own. Be it some kind of loving, yet hopefully calm, confrontation. Why do I say all that again? William Hendrickson warns us, holy anger might degenerate into resentment or hatred or an unforgiving attitude. Calvin says it can be mixed with the violence of carnal passions if we allow it to gain strength and smolder to keep on burning. And all of that leads to guardrail number three for our anger. It must not be holy, uh, excuse me, it must be holy, not sinful. That's the first thing. It must be short-lived, not lingering through the night. It doesn't need to keep burning. And in all this, what does it say? Thirdly, it says we must not, verse 27, we must not give an opportunity to the devil. The exact wording is give no opportunity to the devil. As I told you last week, the NIV says, do not give the devil a foothold. It's this rock climbing term. Don't, don't let him get some leverage. Don't let him get his hooks into you. Don't let him scale 
the, the mountain of destruction that is our anger. Using the foothold of our anger. Even if that anger started out as a holy and righteous anger. Satan prowls. We know this. He lurks. He looks for an opportunity. If we leave the door ajar of our anger, he's going to find a way in. He wants to use what one person calls the poison of hatred to kill your relationships with others in your church, in your family, whoever. Because remember the context here. What is Paul saying? He's trying to say, pursue unity. Be eager to maintain the unity God has given you. Maintain unity. Unity by means of purity. That's why we have these guardrails. So that we can remain pure in our anger. And if we stray outside of them, it says Satan will use that to tear apart the members of a family, a church family, brothers and sisters in Christ. He'll dismember the body of Christ. That's a grotesque illustration. I'm sorry, I don't apologize. That's what he wants to do. May that be an encouragement to us to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. Be quick to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. I mentioned this last week, Peacemaker Ministries. We have some of these peacemaking principles, pamphlets out by the coffee pot. This is what we want to strive for. To overlook an offense if we can. To reconcile if we can't. To own our share of the problem. I say this a lot. I don't apologize for it. We need to own our 5%. Repent of our 5%. There are a lot of problems in life. The other person might be more wrong than you are. I realize that. Once had a godly elder look at me and say, yeah, repent of your 5%. Let them worry about their 95%. If we don't turn from our anger, even if it starts out as holy anger, Satan can use it to destroy the body of Christ. If we, if we don't hate our sinful anger, we don't think it's bitter. We'll never taste the sweetness of Christ and His forgiveness. So friends, put on Christian clothes. Put on truth. Put on holy anger. Put on generosity. Because Christ died to make it possible because God's people belong to each other. Because Satan wants our anger to destroy our body. And fourthly, finally, because others may need our help. Others may need our help. That's specifically why we put on generosity. If we don't put on hardworking generosity, verse 28, then who's going to help our brothers and sisters in Christ? The body of Christ that we belong to, the body of Christ that He bought with His own precious blood, says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Our Welsh terrier, Oswald, he likes to steal food straight from the dinner table. Recently, so a month or so ago, we were learning this verse, this exact verse for sword fighters. And during that month, one night, Ozzy brazenly stole one of the kids' food right off their plate, the dinner table. And so I said, Ozzy, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him later doing honest work with his paws. You can give me a gold star for scripture memory. I suppose you have to give me a black star or some kind of mark against for anger, all the same. But, but stealing hurts our community, doesn't it? it? It tears us down. It hurts our community. Now, a dog stealing a sandwich, you can make another sandwich. 
But what if he did it every day? What if someone else robbed you every day of your life? Wouldn't that be a leech upon you, upon the whole economy, the whole community? See, greed and selfishness, these are the deadly sins that tear down community, along with others. But we don't need to overlook those. They, they hurt you. They hurt your ability to help those who really need your help. That's why Paul tells us, put off stealing. Take that off. Don't wear that anymore. And not only the big and obvious ways that we steal, small ones too. How about like not working hard? <laughs> Stealing money from undue laziness, and I don't mean a standard lunch break and an eight-hour shift. I mean 10 cigarette breaks a day, especially if you don't smoke. Larger Catechism lists some interesting ones here. It talks about, quote, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, cornering the market, creating a monopoly so that you can charge as much as you want. It also mentions that we should have lawful callings or employments. What is an unlawful calling or employment? We could list a lot of them. Let's just list a few. How about being a thief? You can make a decent living if you're a good thief, right? Ocean's Eleven, good movie. Makes you root for the bad guys. It's a little tricky there, isn't it? It's not commendable work. Thieves might work hard, but it's not honest work, the way verse 28 describes it. How about gambling? Westminster Confession, the, the larger catechism, calls it wasteful gaming. The term gambling didn't exist in the 1600s. Gambling might be legal in many different forms in the state of Colorado, but it's not permissible, it's not legal for a Christian. Think about it, gamblers might work hard, but that doesn't mean it's honest work. T. David Gordon says gambling is as wasteful as wasteful could be. It's unproductive. It doesn't produce something. It doesn't produce corn or wheat like a farmer. It doesn't produce this good or service that, that bolsters the economy. If you win $50 gambling, you're just taking someone else's $50, whether it's a person or a corporation. One of our elders, who shall remain nameless unless he chooses otherwise, once said lotteries, it's a type of gambling, lotteries are a voluntary tax on those who are bad at math. You have to think about that one. And yes, in case you're wondering, Forest Gate does have a fantasy football league. No money changes hands in that league. At the same time, the app you have to use to set your lineup has little pop-up ads for gambling that we all need to be aware of. Stealing and its related sins, they involve work. It's dishonest work. And God calls us to put on honest work, working hard. We should never despise hard work. And why should we work hard? Colossians says work heartily. Work hard. Unto the Lord, not for men. Knowing our ultimate reward is not the paycheck we take home. It's the heavenly reward from our heavenly Father that we'll see one day. I think that's a good word for us, whether we're a first century slave or a 21st century free agent in the current economy. Why else do we work hard as former thieves, repentant thieves, all of us who have all sinned, stolen through negligence at times. Why should we work hard? So that he, so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Giving is the motive for getting. It's not feeding our families and saving up for the luxuries. It's so we can give. Now, should that motivate us to tithe, to give, to 
the church. Yes, but I want to talk about something more. I want to talk about the idea of a benevolence fund. Do you have one? The church has one. Do you have one? Do you have money that you budget simply to give away? Not, not a tithe, but for other stuff, for the needy family member, for the person at work that can't afford that party you're all headed to, for other things like that. Do you have margin in your budget? In the same way that the Old Testament commanded God's people to leave a margin in their fields so that the poor and needy could glean and be fed. Do you have margin in your budget? Now, obviously, some of you do, maybe many of you do, with all the Christmas for kids, kids that we're adopting, all the shoeboxes we're sending overseas. Maybe not all of us, maybe something for us to think about. Commend those of you who do, and thank you, those of you who do. God has been good to us, He's been good to this church. But God is, what is He doing here? He's not only attacking the sin of stealing, He's getting at the sin underneath the sin, sin of selfishness. The sin of greed. And he's attacking it by turning the thief's attention. By the way, that's all of us. We've all stolen from God. We've all been negligent. We've all been lazy at times. He's turning the thief's attention to the needy. He's giving him a new interest in life, a new joy, as someone says. Instead of sponging on the community, John Stott says, the thief will start contributing He also says only Christ can transform a burglar into a benefactor. Only Christ can do it. Only He can help us get outside of ourselves, our own small needs, and turn our eyes to the needs of others. Only Christ can do this. The beginning we said only, we said Christ has died to make all this possible. But as we come to the end with all these lists, these heart-searching, convicting lists, as we talk about God's high standard, it's very possible that some of us feel guilty this morning. That we're saying, inside, I haven't been truthful enough. I haven't been angry enough. Or maybe I've been too angry. Maybe I haven't been angry in the right way. Maybe I haven't been angry about the right things. That's a tough one. And then generosity, hardworking. I haven't done that one enough. And I ask you this morning, what will you do when you feel that way? Even if you don't feel that way now, you will at some point. What what will you do when you feel like you've fallen short? Will you simply give up? It's just too hard. Or will you remember the prodigal father? The one who was lavish in love to his wasteful prodigal son. You know him, the son who knew that he was unworthy, who had squandered his wealth and wasteful living who who said, I'll go home. I'll grovel before my father. I'll tell him I'm not worthy. The one who didn't even get to give his speech to his father because his father in love and mercy and generosity cut him off and said this, Luke 15, 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Yes, friends, as I said at the beginning, our sin is deadly. But the love of God, our Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord, is positively divine. Yes, the standard He calls us to is high. He calls us to purity and unity within the church. It's high. We can't reach it on our own. But the love of God is higher still. 
is someone once said, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. Because he died for the liars, the lazy, for those who love anger too much. And if all these commands in chapter 4, if they're too weighty, if they've made you forget all the good things that he said in chapters 1 through 3, by grace you've been saved. If you forget all that, at least finish chapter 4. Because here's how he ends. Chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. More commands. Why am I reading this? Because the last words, as God in Christ forgave you. And keep reading on to chapter 5 where it says in verse 2, walk in love, another command, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Yes, God calls us to hate Various things, to hate the damage that Satan can do to our community, to hate the wreckage that our own lies and unholy anger and greed can, can, can wreak upon a population. But he also wants us to love, to love the church glorious, as we see here in Ephesians, the body that loves one another, strives for holiness together, that uses its gifts, its speech, its love to build one another up, that helps the needy when they need it. God wants us to hate what He hates, love what He loves. That's true. But I think He also wants us to realize that we can't do any of this without His help. He wants us to be at the end of ourselves where we say something like this, God, help me hate all those things that tear down the body. Help me love. Help me do all those things that build the body up. But God, I don't think I can do it on my own. I can't give all the help that everyone needs, that the body of Christ needs. In fact, I can't even help myself. And no, you can. But God can. And He will if we ask Him. He's ready to receive the unworthy and the worn out. He's ready to receive and transform the liars, the lazy, those who love anger. And He's called us to come put off our old clothes and put on better clothes so that we might serve one another, so that we might grow together in love. That's what he's called us to do. That's what he's empowered us to do. Let's pray that he would keep doing that. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we come to you. We don't want to ignore your word because it seems too hard. We want to pay attention to it. We want to let it convict us, but in a good way. We want to let it lead us to the cross of Christ, where we find salvation, where we find healing for the guilt we feel, the shortcomings we feel, the sin that we know is there. Father, we want to let it motivate us, empower us, remind us that you've, you've granted us what you command. You've promised to give us the strength to obey in the ways you've called us to, not perfectly on this side of heaven, but to walk in newness of life. So give us that strength. And Father, if there are any who've never found that strength before, who've never come to Christ before, we pray you'd bring them to yourself even now. Help them to taste and see that you are good and that you're worth following all the days of our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' great name. Amen.